This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. <laughs> Who is this someone? This someone is the one who feels the gentle flow of breath going in and out of these two nostrils, is the one hearing the rush of air on the outside of this plain fuselage, is the one with no gap between this moment and a story about this moment, is the one with no judgment about this moment, with no judgment about having a judgment, is the one who rings clear as a bell when struck by life's imperative, is the one who needs no words to speak, whose words speak of their own accord, is blood, bones, mucus, and muscle in a miraculous presentation of vitality no one knows how. In truth, there is no gap between the question and the answer. This someone is the one asking. Valeria Tellis interviews Christopher Kievel, the author of Finding Zen in the Ordinary, Stories and Reflections. Christopher Kievel is an ordained Zen teacher and the founder and host of Garden Oat Sangha. Chris has been practicing Zen since 1991 and teaching since 1998 in the lineage of his teacher, Zen master Bo Mun, George Bauman, who is a Dharma heir of the Korean Zen master, Seong Sang. Chris is also the managing director and founder of Wellspring Consulting, a national firm that helps nonprofit leaders develop strategy for the future. Previously, he was a partner at the Boston Consulting Group, an international management consultancy. Earlier, he worked as a carpenter and house builder, and as a musician and dance caller in the Irish and New England folk traditions. Chris is the founder and host for Garden Oak Sangha, a virtual gathering for meditation and sharing in the Zen tradition. His Twitter handle is at Chris Kievel. Meet Chris at FindingZenInTheOrdinary.com and gardenoaksanga.org. Here is the interview with Christopher Kievel. In your own words, who is Christopher Kievel? I am a person who is in the later stage of my life, having lived over 60 years. I have had a long-term Zen practice. I also work as a management consultant to nonprofit organizations. I have a family, a wife, and two children, and I am uh, seeking to live wholeheartedly in the present moment. Let me ask you this question. What is the present moment? Can you describe what that is? And when we say be present, what is it? Well, the way 
uh, I practice being present is in part through meditation, which is a, um, it's really a practice activity to regularly bring oneself back to the experience of breathing, of the uh, slight sounds around one, the feeling in one's legs. Uh, it's a practice of uh, coming back to just what's happening right here. And then uh, from that, carrying that out into my own life where I'm practicing just what's being here as I talk with you here on this podcast, as I go through my daily life. Uh, but the present moment is constantly shifting and changing. And so if I was to try to define this is the present moment, I think I would miss it because it's something that is remarkably fluid and shifting all the way from the original nothingness before the Big big Bang to when the universe expanded to when the planets formed, when humans arose, uh, the present moment has gone through these vast changes of what's actually going on in this very moment. So I think it's, for me, very much more experiential and gained through practice and attentiveness uh, than a definition. That resonates. And with that, what comes to mind as a mental activity is when you say that being present requires practice. Would you say is that an unlearning, undoing? Yes, I would say that there's something mysterious and vast at the uh, in the midst of all of us in our own experience, and yet our natural proclivity is to add naming and descriptions and discrimination and judgments and expectations and plans, which are all mechanisms by which we navigate our lives. And yet when we're fully caught up in those plans and expectations and hopes and fears, we miss the amazing ground of being that it resonates within each of us, within me, within you. And we may be living simply from the uh, uh, mundane factors of our lives. So the practice of being present um, is a practice of becoming increasingly aware of that uh, vast ground of being that uh, fills all of us and that from which we can live. And when we do that, then it creates a greater um, relativeness to the of judgments and discriminations that we apply, that they're simply tools for navigating life and not the final definition of who we are or what's happening to us. So enlightenment, that's another interesting idea, concept we have. What is that for you? Is that a destination? Yeah, it's interesting. There's a, a beautiful Mahayana Buddhist text called the um, Avatamsaka Sutra or the Flower Ornament Scripture. Um, and in the translation that has been brought into English, the, uh, there's hundreds of beings with incredibly wonderful names that are all um, termed as enlightening beings rather than enlightened beings. And I was very struck in reading that book uh, and recognizing just putting the I-N-G after the word enlighten rather than enlightened I think it's a misnomer to believe that enlightened, which would actually be a either a present or past tense idea, actually exists. But there is a uh, a unfolding that one is in the midst of, and in fact, 
we're all in the midst of, I think, an enlightening unfolding and that there are times when we awaken to it and are aware of the amazing interconnection and uh, fundamental that infuses all of our, our, our being. And we can have an experience of being aware of or have a greater sensitivity to this enlightening space or enlightening um, aspect of all things. So I don't, uh, again, think of uh, enlightened as something that one heads towards or arrives at, um, even though there is also a paradox, at least within the practice that I've engaged with and that people I've studied with, that there is a yearning and a striving, a desire to... Um, uh, seek enlightenment. And that yearning, I think, is a genuine aspect of our uh, wish for spiritual fulfillment. And and so it, that exists, a sort of sense of yearning. And the yearning often takes a form of seeking uh, for some place or for some arrival. It's the nature of how our uh, makeup is, I think, to seek for some arrival. And yet the fact is that we are in the midst of the unfolding all the time uh, and the idea of arrival is um, not really um, the way it all unfolds. I asked the question, not to all my guests, but some of them, how did this happen? How did we, as the we, the I, got to contract this energy and solidify this idea of I, of me? How did this happen? Because I remember being a child and very free, no judgments and not even discernments and kind of really happy, smiling all the time. And this was a kind of a, this magical place or reality. And then all of a sudden something happened. And then I was ashamed and kind of aware of the body. And so I wonder if this is something that can be undone because a lot of that is still here and it didn't never left, yeah. right? Right. I would say it simply needs to be fully done. I would say uh, the image coming to my mind is that of a large um, pine tree with pine cones. And I don't know if you've ever looked at the top down from the top of a pine cone, but it has a, a, a spiral in the leaves of the pine cone or the openings of the pine cone. And I think one can ask, how did that happen? How did the pine cone get a spiral? And how did a pine tree get pine cones? And how did humans get a sense of I? And I think that it is all part of this incredible mystery that has unfolded in this, um, this present reality, in this universe in which we engage. And so I think it's um, not a meaningful question to answer when one asks, how did this I get established or one can walk backwards into the question and realize there's this sense of curiosity, wonder, maybe even frustration that arises when it's like, why am I burdened with this sense of I? And that sense of why am I burdened? Why am I burdened with this sense of I becomes in itself, the question uh, converts into a sense of amazement about why, why is this true? Just as one would look at a spiral in a pine cone and wonder, why is this true? And the, and the amazement and the wonder is kind of what makes up that why. Yeah, what keeps coming is this, um, that this is also part of the unconditional wholeness or life itself. 
So it feels that we are separated from whatever we are trying to uh, look for, but it's just a feeling. It's uh, everything. We were never separated from life itself, never. But it's it's interesting, but it feels like it. <laughs> well, the thing that comes to me on that is that um, there's this aspect in the Zen practice and that I write about in this book, Finding Zen in the Ordinary, that is about um, what one might call the emotional imperative um, of that um, the greatest power and strength is found where you most don't want to go. So if I'm, you know, I, as a management consultant, I have clients. Sometimes my clients are not entirely happy. May, they may be concerned and upset. And it can be very challenging for me to engage and to listen to them and to accept their disappointment and figure out what to do. And I may have lots of ideas that come up that uh, self-castigation or feeling that they're, you know, such a pain in the ass or all of these things that may happen because I'm disturbed by their fear or their anger or their frustration. And the amazing thing, and I'm sure you know this principle too, and I'm sure many of the people on this podcast talk about this is if one walks straight into that emotional space of, of discord, it doesn't go away. Uh, it may actually get heightened. But if one is upright in the presence of that, there's this awareness that this is life unfolding and there's no separation. It's not as if uh, I don't want to be in this painful space and I want to get out of it. Uh, certainly there's a, that, that sense, but one can develop the discipline to say, and then what is what am I going to do to stand upright in the midst of it and enact? And the amazing thing that I've been finding in my life is that as I develop the facility to stand upright in the most challenging situations, then new creative options become apparent about how to address the situation that were not apparent when I was contracted and trying to uh, close down and get away. And so I become a, an actor in my own creation and the creation of, of that which is causing pain uh, rather than simply uh, working to try to find always kind of ease and peace. Mm, but it's not a detachment, right, Christopher? Not at it's all, It's actually no. quite the opposite. And yeah. that's what I mean by standing upright. It's really being uh, open for what is the next act, next act the, the mm. kind word to say. The, I had an interaction with my wife this morning where um, we're going to be visiting with one of her mother's old friends, and she's uh, more elderly uh, and and is a very discriminating person visually. She actually has written books and has uh, uh, published things. And, and my wife is um, wanting to be a good, good guest. And she was admonishing me to make sure that I brought the right things and that we were, you know, polite. And, and at first I was very irritated. It's just like, why is she always telling me how I should behave? And rather than just get annoyed, which I started to get annoyed, I used this practice to go into what is actually going on. And I realized that she dearly wants to be um, uh, a good guest and connect with this woman who was a close friend of her mother's. Her mother has passed away now. And so I realized I actually want to be helpful to my wife so that she can feel a sense of connection with this uh, friend of her mother's. And it shifted my internal sense from annoyance to curiosity to what can I do to be helpful. Uh, and I'm not saying this happens all the time for me, but it is comes from this practice of staying upright in the midst of 
challenge and discord and seeing uh, what to do. And then we talked further and I, I talked about this with her and it really brought greater ease to both of us as a result of that. So talk to me for a moment about the main inspiration and intention of writing your book, Finding Zen in the Ordinary, Stories and Reflections. I have been practicing Zen for around 30 years now and have had a relationship all of that time with a teacher named George Bowman, who is a a Zen master. And uh, in the course of my practice over all those years, regular meditation and meditation retreats and interactions with with him, I found myself uh, uh, shifting from a sense of uh, hopeful investigation around spiritual matters to gaining some sense of maturity uh, around the spiritual landscape about um, things that have arisen in my course of my life. I also realized that there's been moments of um, insight that have arisen in my life. And as I think back over my life, I I came across uh, times where something really opened up with clarity for me. And the book is a collection of 48 vignettes, stories and little uh, sort of uh, scenes and poems and reflections on um, insights. Um, It's intended to bring up in the reader uh, the experience of insight for themselves. And I've had many people who've read this say that it's a slow read in the sense you tend to read a page or two and it gets you thinking. And... um, uh, a friend of mine said that it's a little like uh, uh, fine fudge. You know, you don't eat it eat it fast. <laughs> but the idea is that it, it actually creates experience of awareness of the deep spiritual space that we can inhabit rather than talking about it. I think there's so many books that talk about what it will be like when you practice this or when you do that or these are the thoughts about this kind of practice and, and, and – uh, what I was hoping for is to have a book that actually was the experience itself. When someone would read it, they would uh, engage in spiritual awareness as a result of the process of reading. You are a ordained Zen teacher, the founder mm-hmm. and the host of Garden Oak Sangha, uh, mm-hmm. also a managing director and founder of Wellspring Consulting. Talk to me about the Garden Oak Sangha. Does it happen online, in person? Mm-hmm. Garden Oak Sangha um, is, you can find it at website at uh, gardenoaksangha.org. And uh, I host online meditations once a month. And if someone, uh, any of the listeners are interested in participating, there's a connect page in on the website where they can send me an email and we can connect and I can send out an invite for those meditations. And uh, recently we have not been meeting in person, but there's also a group of people in my area of Connecticut here that have come together over time and meditated in the Zen tradition. And it's really intended to be a sangha from the perspective it's a gathering of friends and people who uh, take uh, courage and strength and support from each other in this uh, practice, but also in simply in life in the fact that we all face our challenges and that um, in coming together to meditate, uh, experiencing that um, and appreciating each other. 
So your book is, um, it's actually, I put it in the end, uh, 10 Principles of Zen. I don't know how to pronounce this. Bo Mons, 10 Principles of Zen. Is that how sure, you pronounce yes. it? Sure, yes. Yeah, yeah. That you have illustrated through the stories you tell, the reflections yes. and stories, uh, beautifully yes. done. So the ones that caught my attention, I'll be asking you questions about stages or no stages. I think it was chapter uh, 18 where you talk about something that the spiritual realization is loss, not gain. Talk to me about that for a moment. As you've been saying multiple times, and I concur, <clears throat> there is a profound sense of not knowing yeah. at the heart of yeah. spiritual inquiry. Yeah. And there's a willingness to enact and be present <clears throat> while not knowing what it's really all about. Right. Uh, it's, it's a paradox in the sense that one can gain a deep sense of being at home or that one is resident in, in just the right way, but have no idea to, of how to really describe it. Yeah. And so, um, as we've been saying, the mental faculties of naming and discrimination and planning uh, are all uh, necessary for navigating through life. There's this opportunity to allow it to all fall away and to be in a space where there's no, the discriminating mind is not operating uh, or to be in a space where the discriminating mind is operating, but one is also aware of the non-discriminating space operating simultaneously. So one's identity is no longer as firmly hitched to the discriminating mind. And so it's really, I think, the space of not knowing uh, and yet being fully present with what is uh, that I think uh, brings a sense of wholeness to life. In the book uh, four, I choose this. That caught my attention because I don't kind of subscribe to the idea of free will or choice. It's life doing what it does. No one's choosing. Who is there to choose anyway? So when you said, I choose this, I wondered immediately, who is choosing? But then you said uh, in the first line, so often what I am doing is not what I choose. So what is your understanding or your message about choice and choosing? Well, this piece arose from an experience where often, as I describe here, I, my mind is seeking something other than the experience that I'm having in the present moment, uh, actively seeking it. It's like imagining what I'll do that evening or thinking I should be talking to somebody else. Or, and um, it was, it's been useful to be attentive to that tendency of what I maybe should say this mind, this mind resident in this head that sits on these shoulders. <laughs> and this mind has a seeking for something else characteristic to it. And so this piece I wrote is really a reminder to myself and anybody else who's interested that that, that is the way this mind works. And yet there's a way to allow it to leave and settle down. So I'm using the terms here that I choose and I spent many years second guessing things and I should choose this, just this place. But um, in a way, the choice, choosing of this place is a letting go of choice and resting in the present. And so that would be another way of framing what's, what's here. 
It really feels like somebody. It's interesting. It goes back to a feeling. Everything feels like somebody's choosing to do something. I'm choosing to be here to talk to you today, which is just conditionings of mind and body playing, uh, doing what it does. I mean, we can't really do what we are not conditioned to do if it is a doing experience. And that's a, a question that I, I wanted to ask you earlier, even off record. What is there beyond experience, Christopher? Well, let me go into your question. I'm not sure I've considered what's beyond experience. It seems that if we think about experience as something that is experienced and therefore there is an experiencer, if there is a full release of a sense of an experiencer and there is simply presence, then the ownership of experience dissolves and one is uh, simply arising and enacting. I arise by the compounded elements that are within me continuing to sustain an activity of human bodiness. And I enact by beating blood around blood vessels and pulling air in and letting it go out. I'm constantly enacting. And yet, you know, the English language has the convention of me saying I, but this body here is constantly enacting. And if there's no owner of experience, then one might say there is no experiencing. There is simply presence and enacting. Arising, um, happening, right, with no ownership. That is amazing. And it really seems like the impossible to do that. We can only realize this. We can't really understand what it... I mean, with the, the intellectual, rational mind, that this is happening, something is happening, is arising. I, and there's no ownership, there's nobody here really doing anything, which it is true, I must say, um, whoever is here. I mean, which is not, you see, we will all, always go back to the I as a reference, but there's nothing. I, I love your uh, working with that sense of I and I in language. There was a period when I was working there was a period in the life of this being here when this being was working to use no uh, term representative of this being's individual identity. And this being was seeking a way to enact life with no reference to an individual identity. There seems to be a way to construct that in the English language and therefore to engage, and I've sometimes there I use I, and this, this being has sought to do that. And yet at one point I laid it down as too difficult or unnecessary. And so have used I more commonly, but I've deeply resonate with your reflection on the imaginary nature of this I and to use it in language so commonly reinforces its apparent reality. I usually say, ah, I still is the I. Um, I don't have a life, I am life. But then you have to I again. <laughs> like how do I, it's again, I, oh my God, uh, too many yeah. I's. And yeah. yeah, how do we, 
You see, but there's no, um, it's just language. And it's just, we are just using the uh, the faculties, the abilities we we have. I have to use the, the word we, I, again, on and on and on, because this is language, which is part of the gift yeah. um, of being, or what comes with this, right? This condition right. of the body. Yeah. It's the realization of that there's just the language. It's just, just speaking, but it's, mm-hmm. there's just speaking, mm-hmm. really. Like, like now, sounds, but there's mm-hmm. not... I don't know what, where it's coming from. It's just sounds and um, this realization of the sound. <laughs> but who is realizing anything anyway? <laughs> then it goes back. Wow, yeah. what a dance. <laughs> yeah. What a who is realizing it? Who understands the word I? <laughs> right. Ah, that's why it sounds like liberation might be just embracing everything. You know, yeah. that's okay. Uh, the I, let's uh, use, <laughs> let's use well, the I, the we. But, it, you know, there's a sense yeah. here, something here that knows and at the same time doesn't know what all this is. It might be, it goes back to the paradox again. It always goes back to it. I love the, um, there's something in your book under, is it possible? 12, that story, I think in the very end, you say, Zen cuts the distance and enter into, it seems, the realization of awakening that you're speaking of so deeply that there is no room for opinion. And that might be it when there's no more, there's no opinions anymore. Is that that in between, really, which um, you say that again over about no choice, nah, choosing aside the, uh, let me see, quoted by the patriarchs, let me see what says... And the great way is not difficult, only avoid picking and choosing. If you don't grasp or reject, it fully reveals itself. To me, it goes back, not, it's not a place, it's a st- still place, it's a, it's a movement, it's an energetic resonance of just being, uh, moving with it all and just let it be. <laughs> I love that. It sounds like liberation to me. It does, but I, I have no idea who is speaking. Why is this? I have been always curious about all this, but not really realizing that um, it could be realized in a way of, uh, you know, I'm just free. I'm already free. I have been free. It has been the uh, um, the contracted eye that really, it's it feels like it's, this, it's an energetic thing. It's the contraction, limitation when we... Um, wow. Oh, can I even speak about it, Christopher? I'm trying to find words, but this, um, it falls into I, this again. I get what you're shooting at. I get, I get the picture. <laughs> I get yeah. the picture. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> that somebody gets the picture. Yeah, somebody that's yeah. not somebody. Um, <laughs> and I love when you yeah. say the 27 story before and after realization is not something. It is the absence of something, the absence of something. True, and then uh, something else that caught my attention. Let's see. Oh, this really, really, really caught my attention when you said in your book, it's a monk that, um, how to pronounce his name? A monk asked the 28th, when off the cushion? Yan men. Yan men, yan men. What is the teaching that transcends the Buddha and the patriarchs? Uh, and then he says, a sesame bun. <laughs> a sesame bun. That made me laugh because 
Yeah, this is it. <laughs> I mean, it's so simple. It's obvious, isn't it? It's yeah. obvious. This is it. Yeah. Uh, talking you know, to you did now. You notice the sesame bun on the front of the cover yeah. of the book. Yes. Yeah. Right. And yeah. you, you have it right yeah. there. That's the message, the most profound yeah. message that yeah. we can think of and not think of. <laughs> it's yeah. That. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Right? There's nice thinking is not even required. Right. Right. Right, that's lovely. Wow, thank yeah. you so much for the message. Yeah. I know it's so obvious, but we tend to miss it over and over, mm-hmm. overlook mm-hmm. this miss mm-hmm. over and over yeah. and over again. Yeah, yeah. And that comes suffering, and that's why um, that might be the reason we emotionally, psychologically, at the level at that level of the mental activities, we suffer so much mm-hmm. because we miss mm-hmm. what it's obvious. Uh, I love what he said. So many other. I know we almost. Almost at the end of the conversation, but there are so many other points. Eight, um, thirty-eight. The the message there. She was just here. She that, was just here. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting excited. Then my voice getting. <laughs> it's kind of funny how the, when you get get to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, just this is it. I oh my god, is this something that really resonates energetically with the body, mind, mm-hmm. everything? Is when whatever it's in front of, like here, like you, we are communicating something that. Somehow we understand. It's not understandable, but we do. We get it. And I'm like, wow, how, how could this be possible? And energetically, the body just <laughs> wants to just laugh yeah. and jump. Yeah. It's the interesting. Uh, ah. yeah. So you say, yeah. comes death, then life. No death, no life. Only death, only life. This death, this life. Uh, that really also energetically resonated. So would you like to make a comment about that passage or that chapter? Yeah. yeah. Well, this was chapter was about a dear friend who passed away uh, at a relatively early age. And the little stanza there at the end, uh, you know, it, it's just arose from a, a sense of what what can represent that feeling of the passing of a person and yet the fact that there's something ephemeral there's something eternal about each of our spirits and something ephemeral about life and about death and so um that's where the passage arose from i i didn't write it with my mind i wrote it with my heart and it it spoke forth and i i I laid it out and i felt like wow that resonates it feels like the one of the most profound or the, the strongest kind of kinds of suffering in pain is losing someone that we love oh yeah isn't it yeah. Yet there's nobody yeah. there. Um, yeah. And then, hmm, then I've had a very interesting experience with my stepfather-in-law who passed away on August 7th. And he was 91 years old and had um, cancer. And um, yet he was remarkably healthy right up until the last few months. His passing has been a great sadness for me. He was a deeply spiritual person. He actually practiced the Course in Miracles, which you might be familiar with. Yes, I am. And would write every day with it. But also he um, had been a business writer and worked for General Electric and, you know, had had, you know, a career. And I I admired him and had a great uh, love for him. But one of the fascinating aspects is in the midst of also feeling a sense of a hole in my heart, I've had a curious feeling that he's actually closer than ever before Mm, because I realized that when he was in a body and distant from me, he used to live about an hour and a half drive away, I would have to wait to see him in order to feel his essence. 
but now he's no longer in a body. It feels that it is my uh, responsibility, my opportunity to manifest his being through my being in that I knew him quite well and that he had a great offering for the world. So it's almost like his his energetic ripple has tuned into my energetic ripple mm. and I have an opportunity to use his energy more wholeheartedly. Mm. And that has been very, very dear for me. And so death is this remarkable mystery and is not really quite an ending. It's like a transformation with uh, many different um, aspects to it. And I remember asking one day to this mind-body, who is here? And the answer was just so powerful in many ways, energetically powerful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Who is here? No one's here. It, it's everywhere. So everywhere was the answer. <laughs> so that makes mm -hmm. sense, yeah, that we are, mm -hmm. I mean, there's no one here, but everywhere. It's everywhere. So how uh, can we die? How can this disappear? Mm -hmm. It's just... We might close our eyes here and the, the energetic force will be dissipate and then you're just going to open in a different um, way, different form. But that is just incredible. <laughs> I mean, this is the most amazing, uh, the unimaginable dream, isn't it? What this is. Um, thank you so much, Christopher, for your message, for this energetic exchange of life, <laughs> being in life and doing what it does. So I have a few more questions for you, the ending questions. Before that, would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book? No, I think we've probably touched on the book in wonderful ways. I do hope some of you who are listening uh, get a chance to read it. It, I think, is a lovely gift for those people who have spiritual interests and are seeking. And uh, I would only say, Valeria, how much a treat it is to talk with you. I, I, I um, feel a, a wonderful resonance and I appreciate your kindness and your enthusiasm. Uh, and uh, I feel very uh, welcomed and drawn in. So it's really lovely to spend this time with you. I feel the same way. That feeling is here. <laughs> and the ending questions, what is another word for compassion? Oh, I think boundless love. And my last question is, what are three things you wish everyone in a body to realize, to know, to experience before they leave the body mm. or they lose the body. Yeah, one would be that the most precious opportunity is in this present moment. And another would be that we are fundamentally not separated and that separation as an individual is a, a belief that we work in the midst of, but is not actually uh, what it is. And a uh, third, I would hope, is that uh, people uh, live their lives wholeheartedly, even though it may be challenging at times because it's our one life to live and it's um, over soon. Thank you so much again, Christopher, for your contribution to a more peaceful reality at that level of separation, that separated wholeness. It might find its way to experience wholeness somehow. Thank you for that. And before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? 
Sure. Uh, you can find uh, the book's website at uh, com. It's also available on Amazon.com under the title Finding Zen in the Ordinary and my um, author name, Christopher Kievel. Uh, you can also see um, the meditation sessions I host on um, gardenoaksanga.org. Uh, gardenoaksanga.org and uh, there's a way to contact me either through the book website or the uh, gardenoaksanga.org website. Wonderful. I'll have those links on your podcast profile too. Excellent. Thank you so much again, Christopher. We'll talk soon. Bye Thank for you. Now. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Christopher Kievel and his work, please visit FindingZenInTheOrdinary.com and GardenOakSanga.org. To learn more about this podcast, please visit FitForJoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.